Uh, please grab a Bible, either from the pew Bible in front of you or the one you brought in with you. We're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 13 this morning. It's found on page 409 in the pew Bible in front of you. Nehemiah chapter 13. Uh, a few weeks ago, my family had the uh, privilege of visiting the beautiful beaches of Indiana. You know, one of those hidden jewels in the Midwest, right? It was a good day. It was a beautiful day. And it, was, uh, it happened to be a very windy day, the day that we were there. And the waves coming off of Lake Michigan were actually pretty rough. And uh, the lifeguards were constantly giving out warning signs of the, the strong currents that were happening that morning. And uh, telling the, the swimmers that it was not safe to swim in water that was above their waist. Well, my four children, who are pretty adventurous, loved experiencing the strength of those waves over and over again, just washing over them. But what they didn't know was that the strong currents on Lake Michigan were, real, were literally pushing them down the beach at a rather rapid pace. And so my wife and I, we were standing on the edge of the water and uh, watching them just get hammered uh, with the waves, uh, watching them laugh and have a good time. And then about every five to eight minutes or so, we'd have to go down the beach about 50 yards or so and pull them out of the water and bring them back to safety because they had no idea what's happening to them. Today, as we wrap up this series in the book of Nehemiah, we find that Nehemiah does not end on a very great high spiritual note. If you were here last week in chapter 9, Todd Augustine preached on the dynamics of spiritual renewal, and it's this high point of the book of Nehemiah. Everything's going great. Today, chapter 13, is the complete opposite of chapter 9. Because here what we see are the dynamics of spiritual decay. And like my children then who needed to be brought back from the currents uh, in Lake Michigan, these words here in chapter 13 should serve as a warning for us about the dynamics of spiritual decay that can happen right after a spiritual renewal or revival. That's what's being described here. And so in in this chapter here what we find that there are four spiritual rip currents that were being activated in the people of Israel. Four things that were kind of dragging them away from a vibrant walk with God. We need to listen to the warning. We need to listen to the warning of the chapter because there we will find the power and the grace of God to help us persevere in our lives. Before we dive into those four rip currents, I think it's helpful for us just to get a very brief overview of the timeline of when the events of chapter 13 Take place. You'll remember from chapter 2 that when Nehemiah first leaves Susa, he's, he's there in Susa as the cupbearer to the king, and he leaves Susa and travels to Jerusalem, which was about 750 or so miles away, a long distance away. And when he leaves his post as the cupbearer to the king, he tells the king that he was going to be gone for a specified amount of time. In chapter 5, we learn that he was going to be gone for 12 years. So 12 years is the time that he told the king that he was going to be gone. During those 12 years that he was in Jerusalem, Nehemiah has seen some amazing things happen. God has been uniquely at work in the people. The walls have been rebuilt rebuilt in a very short period of time. They've experienced this renewal and revival we see in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And if you look at the end of chapter 12 at verse 43, we see there that this simple line, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. These are happy days in the life of the Israelites in Jerusalem. 
God's people in God's place, happily living under God's rule. So by the time we get to the events of chapter 13, what's happened, if you look at verse 6 of chapter 13, is that Nehemiah has left Jerusalem and returned back to Susa. He's traveled back, got back on his horse, and he's left. So there he is. All the events of chapter 13 have taken place while Nehemiah has been gone from Jerusalem. Some scholars suggest that the length of time that Nehemiah was gone was only about one year. So one year, he's back in Babylon, and then he asks if he can go back to Jerusalem. And so when Nehemiah makes this long trek back from Susa to Jerusalem on the second trip, he doesn't find what he found in chapter 2. There he found physical rubble, the city being torn down. What he finds when he returns here in chapter 13 is a people who are absolutely broken and sinful. You see, in a period of of just one year, they have experienced a dramatic spiritual drift. Their spiritual renewal is followed by a very dark spiritual decay, which is described here in chapter 13. Now, it would be very easy for us to to look at that, just that brief overview, and, and look at the people of Israel with shock and think to ourselves, how foolish of them. For just one year, they couldn't even obey the commands of God? How is that possible? It's easy for us to kind of pick up stones of judgment to cast at them and think to ourselves that we would never do anything like that. Let us not be too quick to judge. Instead, we need to listen to this warning. and Listen to the warning of this passage and, and humble ourselves before the cleansing power of the cross of Christ. Because we know that too often in our lives, things that, that start well, we can start out really well, we don't end very well. Or we go through patterns of cycles of sin in our own life where we, we do well for a season. And then we have a failure. And then we need God's grace to intervene again. And so their story really is our story as well. We're going to focus our time this morning on verses 4 to 31 which really describe these four spiritual rip currents that cause them to drift. Four things that cause them to be pulled away. Four things that can cause us to be pulled away as well. And so what I want to do this morning is, is describe each of these four, apply them to our lives, and then answer the question, why did God intend the book to end this way? Why does he end on such a downer of a note When things were going so well in chapter 12, why on this down note? So let's get into these four spiritual rip currents. The first one is in verses 4 to 9. Let me read for us verses 4 to 9. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and it was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. 
and I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Okay, so let's understand what's going on here, okay? Eliashib, the priest, has made a studio apartment for Tobiah in the house of God. If you've been with us for any amount of time in this series, or you're at least familiar with the storyline of Nehemiah, you'll recognize this villain, Tobiah. And the thought of him living in the house of God is an absolute tragedy. From the very beginning of this story, Tobiah has been a thorn in the flesh of the Israelites, constantly breathing out threats against them, mocking their work. In chapter 4, he says that if they, the wall that they're building, if a fox goes up on top of it, the wall's going to collapse, mocking them, intimidating them, manipulating them to give up on the work that God had called them to do. He resolutely opposes the work of God from the very, very beginning. And so this is an unbelievable turn of events. Tobiah, the enemy of God's people, now living in the house of God. It's increasingly shocking if we look at verse 3, which says, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So one year earlier, they had separated everyone out, moved them out, and now Tobiah is living in the house of God. Nehemiah must have been floored by this. We see in verse 8 that he was angry. And so he he evicts Tobiah. Throws all of his furniture out of the chamber. How could this have taken place? Look at verse 4 with me. Verse 4. Eliashib, who is appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, was related to Tobiah. The first spiritual rip current that we see coming out of these verses is misplaced allegiances. Misplaced allegiances. Somehow, perhaps through intermarriage, Eliashib, the priest of God, is now a family member with Tobiah, the enemy of God's people. And because of that relationship, verse 4 tells us, explains to us, that he gave him a favor of epic proportions. So instead of working to protect the house of God... Eliashib's alliance to his family member trumped his allegiance to God. So that's that first spiritual rip current. Misplaced allegiances, or perhaps more directly, allegiance to family rather than allegiance to God. Jesus says something very similar to this in Luke 14, verse 26. There Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. Now those are strong words from Jesus. Now what he's saying is that our allegiance to him must trump all other allegiances. You and I can drift into spiritual decay when when we are more concerned about appeasing family members, about providing them special favors, so to speak, that are actually in disobedience to God. Allegiances which honor family bloodlines over the blood of Jesus will eventually cause us to drift off into spiritual decay. We need to be warned by this negative example of Eliashib and understand that at times 
our decision to follow Jesus will very often look like treason to family members. So conversations we engage in or don't engage in, decisions we make about career, decisions we make about how we're going to spend our money, Whatever it may be that says, I'm following the commands of Jesus over appeasing a family member, sometimes that will feel and look like treason. But Jesus is simply telling us that our allegiance to him must trump all other allegiances. So let us not be be deceived into thinking that family bloodlines are thicker than the blood of the covenant. The second spiritual rip current is seen in verses 10 all the way down to 14. I'm just going to read for us verses 10 to 12. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had each fled to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. The second spiritual rip current described here is neglecting a clear biblical command. Neglecting a clear biblical command. You see, part of the reason why there was even an empty chamber in the house of God for Tobiah to live in is that the people of Israel were failing to fulfill their tithing obligations. Obligations that were instituted by God through Moses. So the people were neglecting to bring in their tithes of grain, wine, and oil into the house of God. And as a result then, the Levites and the singers have to leave the temple and they have to flee to their own fields so that they can make a living for themselves. But if we looked at Leviticus in Deuteronomy, what we would see is that that's not how God intended it to be. The people were to bring in their offerings so that the Levites could be freed up to perform their priestly duties in the house of God. Their main duty then in the house of God is to perform blood sacrifices for people's sin. That's what they're doing. That's their duty in the temple. So if the people aren't bringing in the tithe, the priests are forced to leave. They then are unable to perform this duty. And as a result, covenant faithfulness is broken. Their neglect of this clear biblical command to tithe to bring in these things for the priests means that God's demand for a blood sacrifice for sins could not take place. They couldn't perform that duty. The New Testament is very clear to us in places like 1 John 1 and 2 and and places like John 8 that explain to us that our devotion and our love for God is seen in obedience to his commands. Now, that obedience is never done to earn the favor of God. We don't work to earn our justification before God through a bunch of obedience and doing good works. However, obedience to the commands of the Bible is the natural pattern of a life that's been transformed by Jesus. We are to obey. The grace of God that he's given to us in Jesus is never a license to intentionally neglect a clear command from Scripture. We are commanded to live differently precisely because of the grace of God. And therefore, for us to neglect a command is this rip current that we're going to pull us away very quickly into a life that is not living a vibrant life of faith with Jesus. In Nehemiah, the people were neglecting to bring in 
their obligated tithe. If we look back at chapter 10, they made this huge covenant with God that they would fulfill this covenant to bring in their tithes. Now they are not. Now there may be something for us to consider here, particularly on that point. Are you and I neglecting the command to bring in our tithes? It's clearly commanded in Scripture that God owns our lives and our finances. Are we neglecting to bring in our tithes? Or perhaps we could broaden out just a little bit farther and just say, is there a command of Scripture that you know that's clear that you are intentionally neglecting? Something that you know is clear in Scripture, but you are intentionally not obeying. If that's you, be careful. Be warned by this here. That that is a slippery slope into spiritual decay. Rip current number three. This is seen in verses 15 down to 22. I'm just going to read for us verses 15 to 18. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. The third rip current that we see here is failure to rest and trust in God. That is seen in how they were breaking the Sabbath in this whole section, verses 15 to 22. Failure to rest and trust in God. Our English word for the word Sabbath is simply a transliteration of the Hebrew word, which means rest. That word rest first shows up in Genesis 2.2. And there, if we look back at Genesis 2.2, what we'd see is God is described as resting from all the work that he had done. So God takes a Sabbath from the work that he had done. It later becomes a prescribed observance for Israel upon their exodus out of Egypt. But far from just being a mere command to his people, the Sabbath is meant to say something very powerful about God himself and about our need of him. So if we look back at creation, what we'd see is that that God, when he's creating everything, he isn't kind of wringing his hands in sweaty panic. He's not trying to milk every day of its last worth. No, when God speaks in Genesis, everything comes into, into existence out of nothing. Does it in six days, and then on the seventh day, he Sabbaths. He rests. Now, God wasn't tired, and he didn't need to put his feet up and, and take a break. He works in effortless, perfect precision. So why does God have to rest? I think what we understand and we look at that is is because right from the very start of creation, what God is doing is he's building into the natural rhythm and the created order, an order and rhythm that says, rest, stop working, stop trying to be God, trust me, 
You see, the Sabbath is, is a gift to humanity. It's a gift to us that reminds us of our human limitations. It reminds us of our need to rest and trust in God. In verses 15 to 18, the ones I read, Nehemiah rebukes them for selling and buying on the Sabbath. So they're bringing in all these goods and they're selling them and they're buying on the Sabbath day. So what they're doing is they're trying to take advantage of just one more day out of the week. Trying to milk it dry for all that it's worth. Getting everything out of it. And thereby refusing to rest and trust that on the other six days of the week, God would provide for all of their needs. You see, observing the Sabbath makes a theological statement about the character of God, human limitations, and our need to rest and trust that God's going to provide everything that we need. They were failing to rest, failing to trust in God. Now, there are many good Christians who have different views of the Sabbath. And if we looked around the room here and we talked about it, we would find very differing views about the Sabbath and how to observe it. And it's best on most occasions not to get overly dogmatic about particulars, but to keep those things at personal conscience and conviction. But regardless of your specific view of the Sabbath, what we should all agree on is the theological statement that the Sabbath is making. And our need to take one day out of seven to put down our tools. Whatever that means for you. To rest. To trust that God is going to provide for you. You see, observing the Sabbath makes that statement that that we understand that God is self-sufficient and we are not. So Jesus says to us in Mark 2, 27, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so we observe this principle of taking one day out of seven to rest and trust and enjoy God for all that he is and all that he's given to us. If we fail to rest and trust in God, what we are saying is that we are self-sustaining and that we don't need God. And when we do that, that will, that will naturally be a rip current that pulls us away from this vibrant walk of faith with him. Fourth, the fourth rip current, number four, is seen in verses 23 down to 28. I'll just read for us verses 23 and 24. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. So when Nehemiah returns, what he sees here is he sees that the Jews are marrying women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And let's be clear that these verses are not addressing interracial marriage. That is not the issue on the table. The real problem is that intermarrying with foreign women would lead the Jews to idolatry. The worship of false gods. That's the issue here. That's that fourth rip current. Idolatry. If you look at verses 26 and 27, I won't read them, but you can look at them there. What we see is that Nehemiah recounts the struggle that Solomon had with foreign women. The sin then that Solomon commits is that his his heart was turned away from God. And he started worshiping the false gods of these foreign women. So when Nehemiah sees this happening, the Jews intermarrying, it's not a racial issue. The issue is idolatry. 
that they're going to be dragged away into false worship. If you look at verse 24, these half-breed children would speak the language of Ashdod, but they could not speak the language of Judah. Now that's important. It's important because what this means is that their children then couldn't understand the Scriptures. And without understanding the Scriptures, in a matter of one generation, they would not know the true God of heaven and earth and would be lost to the world of worshiping false gods. You see, that's the underlying issue here. Idolatry. Being pulled away from worshiping the true God. Now, all of us need to listen to that warning of idolatry. Because all of us easily have things that we create in our lives that that take the place of God. Things that we worship. And there are certain dynamics in our lives that, that that are working to pull us into idolatry and the worship of false gods. And this issue here was intermarrying. So I think there's, an, there's a thing about I, I, idolatry in our own lives, but also I think there's a specific application to those who are single and looking for a marriage partner. For a Christian to intentionally pursue marriage with a non-Christian is dangerous. The kind of intermarriage that we are warned against in this passage is the marriage of a Christian to a non-Christian. You see, that kind of marriage has a very strong pull in a person's life to pull them away from God, from worshiping Him, and then having children who do just the same. Now, to be clear, if you are already married to a non-Christian, the Bible is clear to us that you should not abandon your spouse, but you should stay in that relationship as long as they will stay with you in order that they may be one to Christ. So this warning is directly speaking to a person who intentionally seeks to marry a non-Christian and the dangers of idolatry that can result out of that, but the dangers of idolatry for any of us. Four spiritual rip currents. Misplaced allegiances. Neglecting a clear biblical command. Failing to rest and trust in God. And idolatry. Four things that were at work in them. Four things that are at work in us. Well, why does God intend this book to end this way? Why such a a downer note? I, I think we probably would all have liked to end last week. The dynamics of spiritual renewal, that's great. So why does this great story end on such a downer? I think the ending of this book should force each of us to pause look at ourselves in the mirror and to examine our lives to see what might be at work in our lives dragging us away from a vibrant walk of faith with Christ. Perhaps it's one of those four things that are here in this chapter, but perhaps there's something else that that is activating in your life that is pulling you away and you know it's pulling you away. So this, this, this chapter here kind of hits us in the face with our unholiness. And we need to humble ourselves before this chapter, before God. And and when we do that, we realize that we are more like the Israelite people than we'd like to admit. And we are then confronted with our unholiness, the dynamics that exist within us. And when we do that, then we are immediately drawn forward to the holiness of Christ, the power of the cross that we sung earlier in in this time together today. The power of the cross that we were made righteous through Christ alone. And that is it. But when we see the massive gap between 
our unholiness and the holiness of Christ, what that does is it makes the cross of Christ even more intense and even more bigger and valuable for us. Because we see that gap. Without seeing the gap between our unholiness and the holiness of Christ, we have a very small cross. But when we see it, the cross of Jesus Christ gets bigger and bigger and bigger. We are continually in need of the powerful cleansing blood of Jesus for our ongoing growth and holiness. To cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. To make us holy in his sight. So would we therefore plead with God to kind of just wash over us with waves of fresh revival? Don't you want that in your life? I know I do. I want God to continue to wash over me with, with revival, with revealing my sin and revealing his holiness. Because that's how revival happens. When we see who we are and who he is, he washes over us with revival. Don't we want that in our church? in our community, in the world around us. It's very easy for us to kind of just rest on our past successes and to just kind of start coasting in our life. And when we do that, it's easy for us to drift away, away from a life of vibrant faith. This chapter in Nehemiah is like this loud warning sign that says, wake up from your slumber. Stay awake. Stay awake because God still wants to do a fresh work in your life. Would we also then plead with God to help us persevere to the very end of our life? If you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, you know that there are cycles of sin. And you know it's hard to persevere. There are times in your life where sins keep tripping you up. Those times should cause us to cry out to God for mercy, grace, and power to intervene, to help us persevere to the very, very end of our life. We will not persevere to the end unless God is dramatically and actively at work in our lives. We have no ability in ourselves to keep us there. But God does. And so this chapter hits us with that, saying, will you cry out to me to help me persevere? And so let us glory in our redeemers. We're going to sing in just a minute. Instead of glorying in ourselves. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are at work in our lives through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we need you. We need you to wash over us with fresh waves of just your cleansing blood and your power. Knowing, Father, that we are unrighteous on our own. We ask, Father, that you would help us today to grow in faith, to grow in perseverance, that we would plead for you to continue to be at work in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.